A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. If you are looking for a single individual who demonstrates that the internet has changed global politics irrevocably, it's Elliot Higgins. I'm sure he won't mind me describing him as a Frank Zappa-loving video games-playing geek from Leicestershire. But that's about the most normal thing I can say about Elliot. Because in his middle years, his life seems more like a character in a high-budget Hollywood political thriller. Being a geek, Elliot understands that we live in the new age of information abundance. And he's used that innate understanding of web science to dramatically change politics. If you don't know him yet, prepare to be astounded by his story. This episode was recorded during lockdown, so audio might not be as perfect as we'd like. Elliot Higgins, you are my hero. Let me tell you why you're my hero. I think you have great courage. You have challenged some of the most powerful people on the planet. And unlike me in my previous job, you didn't have a platform. You didn't have a party. You didn't have privilege to protect you. You've done it on your own. And I want to talk to you about the journey you've had in the last 10 years. But before I get there, let me ask you about lockdown. How are you behaving differently in lockdown? Um, pretty much not at all. I mean, I've used to be sat on my uh, chair on my laptop working all the time. So it's really not made much difference to me. I figured of all the people I interview for persons of interest, you would tell me that. I think we've got quite a lot in common, right? I was an obsessive gamer. I gave up gaming about three or four years ago to go on a health journey. And I literally had to give all my consoles away. It was like a sort of, I was giving away artifacts, right? But just before Christmas, I got a PS5 and I'm back to sort of playing games till three o'clock in the morning. And in your in some of the interviews you've given, you've said that that's basically where you started in gaming and obsessional online life, gave you this interest in knowledge and data and information and facts and truth. Tell me about that. My earliest memories, I think, of computer games are literally the old Pong kind of consoles back in the early 80s and then getting a ZX Spectrum 48K. And so computers have always been kind of part of my life and I've always kind of loved technology. I always remember when I was very young watching Tomorrow's World obsessively and you know, that kind of stuff. So when the internet came to be about, I was, you know, an early user of it in my teenage years, you know, mid-90s, going on things like CompuServe before we could go to kind of the World Wide Web. But then that kind of really introduced me to all these online communities that I became part of. And 
just really my entire life has been really focused on the internet from the very early days of the internet as well. So I saw it kind of grow and expand and change and how, you know, these different communities appeared and how stuff was being argued about and debated online. And that's kind of where I ended up getting involved with the kind of work that I'm doing now, basically just having arguments with people on the internet. <laughs> and we first got to know each other, although we've never, you know, we didn't physically meet when you used the pseudonym Brown Moses. Tell, tell me about the Brown Moses years. So I had been basically arguing a lot on internet forums about um, the conflict in Libya and also the phone hacking scandal. And in early 2012, I decided to start a blog. And I had no intention of it going anywhere. It was really more just a hobby and giving myself something to do. My daughter's been born, so I, all my other hobbies went out the window. And I thought, start a hobby I can pick up and put down really easily. And that obviously got out of hand. But I started basically just posting stuff, interesting tidbits about the phone hacking scandals, videos from Syria. And I did it under the name Brown Moses, which is a name I'd been using a lot online. And I'd basically picked it randomly years ago from a Frank Zappa song that I had been listening to at the time. And it just kind of became my online pseudonym. So I was using it on Twitter, on internet forums, and the Guardian Middle East live blog. And I thought, that's what people know me as, so I'll use it as my blog name. And then a year later of blogging, I was on like CNN explaining, oh, this is what Brown Moses is. <laughs> This is why I've got such a weird name. But that really started me on this journey of using kind of evidence-based investigation. I, mean, I didn't intend to do that. I just kind of wanted to figure out what was going on in these stories I was interested in because I felt the kind of media wasn't really kind of serving my very specific interests when there was so much information out there. And it was really frustrating. So I thought maybe I can figure stuff out. And I could figure out things like where videos were filmed using satellite imagery and, you know, details of bombs and munitions being used in the Syrian conflict, for example, by using all sorts of online resources to identify them. Every day I was like, okay, I'm going to write something today. Even if it's a short post about one video, I did it. And because I did that every single day, I kind of built up a kind of growing knowledge, weirdly, of a conflict that was happening thousands of miles away and this very complicated phone hacking scandal as well and kind of really obscure details with that. And I would have people kind of occasionally... I had one person I call my regular contributor who I write in the blog is actually running a guest house in the Southwest. Funnily enough, she was doing such high quality work. People were saying, oh, is Tom Watson secretly writing for your uh, blog about the phone hacking scandal? On phone hacking, I look back on the phone hacking years, which for me was sort of 2008-9 to sort of 2012. I feel for me it was so emotionally draining, so psychologically pressured that it's like I'm looking on somebody else's life now, right? And I almost feel that my brain has expunged those years because it was such a painful episode and so frightening. And you gave me a whole new avenue of data. Just for the listeners, tell me how you found what you found. I mean, the, first of all, were the leaked Ray Adams emails, which related to a whole complicated story about how Sky had used basically their own kind of internal intelligence service to undermine their competitors by providing them with hacks for these boxes and stuff. So that was kind of the first thing we were looking at, and there was a whole palaver around that story. And then looking at all these obscure documents, all these records, just stuff you would never even think to look about. And I had this person I mentioned before, the regular contributor, as I called her, because I'm rubbish at making up names, just meticulously read everything. And this is kind of what I did with a lot of stuff with Syria. But 
absorbing every single piece of information and then structuring it in a way that actually using sourced evidence showed a deeper understanding of the case than you get from any kind of other media reporting because they were just obsessed about this one particular thing and they looked a lot at stuff around the southern investigations and what they got up to which i'm not even sure i can legally <laughs> describe no um, i don't think you can <laughs> i would say that all people i'm mentioning are, are, are not charged with anything and are definitely or certainly innocent if anyone asks um but it was just going so deep into these topics that were very complicated, very obscure, looking through things like old Hansard records, old court documents, and digging out just the smallest pieces of information and connections that were otherwise obscured. And because I think we were able to kind of obsess about very specific topics outside of a typical newsroom, it allowed us just to completely indulge ourselves and really digging deeply into this evidence when like a typical reporter would have to move from topic to topic. There was one thing I remembered. You found some information that was cryptographically scrambled wasn't it Mm. and it was never unlocked it was one of those many tentacles of a scandal that i never quite got to the bottom of and there was so much going on did it ever get unlocked in the end no it was they were pgp encrypted emails that had been leaked from an organization and we had like half of the pgp key and apparently it was out there somewhere the rest of this thing that it could be reconstructed but it was kind of like based on a lot of like early internet drama around these cable boxes and the community the hacking community around that which was kind of really obscure and because they were like one of these early internet communities who were kind of working together collaboratively and involved kind of hacking and stuff like that so they had their own kind of personal dramas and history to go through before you could even get to the actual evidence but yeah it, it was quite a fascinating insight into how that kind of internet culture worked and how those certain organizations interacted with them it is possible that someone listening into this podcast could have the other half of the pgp key and if they got in touch with us you could unlock the document that i can't remember what the contents do but there's another bit of the secret that could be unraveled am i right on that yeah i mean the thing is it's so long ago now it's one of these things with the internet even though stuff is out there and you think it's all digital it's just like okay we looked at that intensively but now like so much has happened since then it's like oh we'd have to go back and think about it again but It was so kind of intense at that time, just digging through all these emails and finding all these documents. It's often hard to keep it all in your head. I know that so well. You know, you just get bewildered with information. That particular episode, that was the genesis where you essentially started to build a community of like-minded people who had an ability to find a taxonomy to information that led to hard facts and truths that, you know, normal mainstream journalism either couldn't resource or didn't want to resource. Yeah, that along with the kind of stuff that was happening around Syria and Libya showed me that it wasn't just an expert community. I mean, keep in mind, this when I say community, it's like 10 people. But there were people who were like, you know, someone who ran a guest house, someone who was like a journalist, someone who was just really into tech all kinds of different people but they're all from different fields and different backgrounds so often they weren't communicating with each other because they didn't even think to but because i was kind of like a neutral space on the internet doing this kind of evidence-based investigation they would come to me with questions and then i'd know someone else to come to me with a similar question but also with information and then i connect them together yeah and that became the basis for a lot of how we operate now with Cat, where we're building We've kind of built a community, but a big part of it is this collaboration that people from different fields work together, having greater impact than they would individually. Okay, for the listener that doesn't know Bellingcat, we had the Brian Moses years, and then you realised there was a wider opportunity to really scrutinise bits of data that told a bigger story. 
Tell me how Bellingcat was born and how you came up with the name. So I launched this blog and it started as a hobby, almost my own amusement rather than trying to build an audience. But it did start gaining an audience. And in early 2013, I had what I think is my first really big story where by watching YouTube videos of Syrian rebel groups, I identified weapons that had been smuggled through Jordan by Saudi Arabia. And this was supposedly a top secret Saudi operation, which they'd posted all the videos of it on YouTube. And this ended up being a front page story on the New York Times, which led to me getting loads of attention across the world. I had like CNN, Channel 4, like all these news crews coming to my house. Then I did this big story on the August 21st, 2013 sound attacks in Damascus, which again grew my audience more. And it got to the point in 2014 where I thought, I'd, rather than having my badly formatted, ugly blog, I should see if I can kind of crowdfund the launch of a new website. Yeah. And I did. It was called Bellingcat. And three days after it was launched, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. And that acted as a huge catalyst, both for kind of myself and my own work, but also the entire open source community that was forming, where you had this community that mostly focused on the Arab Spring and the conflict in Syria who had this open source experience, but now there was a new community focused on this event who was made up of people from the Netherlands, Ukraine, Russia, all over the world, who are now digging through all this evidence. And Bellingcat came the place to analyse it and actually turn it into useful information. And we suddenly got very well known for all our work on MH17, but that led us into direct conflict with Russia. Well, let's do Ukraine and MH17, because obviously that was a global story of huge import to the world and sent a judder through foreign affairs world wherever there were professional diplomats. Tell me what you identified that told the story of Russian involvement in the downing of that plane. So the first thing we looked at, um, when I say we, it was basically a team of volunteers that formed around the topic. I was basically the only employee of Balancan at that time. And we started looking at these videos and photographs that showed a book missile launcher, supposedly in eastern Ukraine. We used a whole bunch of different reference imagery and other information to figure out exactly where they were filmed in photographs, like satellite imagery, comparing them to what's visible in the videos. And then at one point you crowdfunded to buy a satellite image. Is that the Ukraine one or was that a different one? That's Ukraine, because Russia on July 21st, just a few days after MH17 was shot down, basically started... To publishing lies about what was happening. They gave a big press conference. They had a huge kind of Russian MOD kind of situation room with massive monitors with all kinds of evidence they said, you know, pointed away from Russia being guilty. One of which was satellite imagery of a missile base that Ukraine had before and after photo where there was a missile launcher in it and then in the after photo it was gone. We actually discovered you could buy satellite imagery of the same location about the same time the Russian imagery was taken. We found it and it showed that the missile launcher was still there. It hadn't moved at all. Not only that, but the details in the satellite imagery Russia had, for example, there's an area of trees that had been ploughed out in July that was still there in the Russian image. And there was like all these dirt tracks that were there. And they actually matched the imagery that was taken at the end of May. So Russia had basically used a month and a half old satellite imagery to claim that this missile launcher had moved. And they basically photoshopped it. But we crowdfunded buying this satellite imagery because, you know, it was about £1,400 to buy it, which I couldn't afford and Bellingcat didn't have the budget to do that. But it took about 15 minutes for people to donate that money. And we published it and showed that Russia was clearly lying about what it had claimed. And it was one thing after another where we showed Russia had lied in this press conference. Like everything they said was a lie. They just lied in different ways. I want to try and dip into your emotions at this time, right? Because this is such a David and Goliath story. There is the entire might of the Putin regime, the epicentre of a global news story, a scandal, a storm, extrajudicial killings by another state. 
you've got this really sort of, you know, military setting where they're telling an untruth. Are you sitting in the room you're in now in Leicestershire, seeing this global live bit unfold and knowing it's a lie? Is that basically what was going on at that time with your little group of volunteers online around the world? I mean, even when they said some of the stuff on the press conference, we already knew it was untrue because Russia bizarrely has a tendency to steal ideas off the internet so one of the things they proposed that this video showing a missile launch that was filmed somewhere else came from a russian internet forum and it was completely untrue and we already knew it was untrue because it had already been debated online and picked apart and discovered but there russia was saying oh this video is filmed here because the text on the billboard says so even though we knew the text on the billboard didn't exist because they had basically just photoshopped it onto the image they were using it said something completely different because we had already seen it on the internet a day before so we knew straight away there was something dodgy about this press conference. But the other stuff took longer to figure out. But even then, it wasn't difficult. It was just actually fact-checking what they were saying. And then it turned out they were lying about everything. It was very... Um, it was kind of alarming that they would do it on such a serious topic, but also not surprising based on what I'd seen them do before. This won't come out on the podcast, but I could see you smiling at the preposterousness of, of the Russian information machine. But what did you feel like? Were you a little bit frightened or were you getting a buzz out? I mean, I know that feeling when you're revealing an untruth from very powerful people. But did you also have an inkling that, you know, there was trouble ahead at that time? Well, not at that moment. I mean, it was until about early 2015 when we first started getting pushback from like the Russian media, like Sputnik and Russia Today. And that started escalating. I mean, in some sense, it was nice they were bothered to pay attention to us because it showed that we were bothering them. So it started with kind of articles in Sputnik and Russia Today saying, oh, look at these amateurs. Maybe they're attached to the CIA. We don't know that kind of stuff. Then it started being Russian officials saying Bellingcat doesn't know what it's talking about or is working with the intelligence agencies or is using fakes. In fact, one time the Russian foreign ministry gave a press conference where they said that we were using fakes. I emailed them asking them for their evidence and they sent me a bunch of plagiarized blog posts as their evidence. <laughs> and that in itself was fantastic because we then published an article saying, look up for Russian foreign ministry plagiarizing blog posts in response to our investigation. Yeah. Then there were more and more government officials speaking about it. Russia Today started getting a bit more nasty. I mean, they sent someone to Leicester to hunt me down and ended up doorstepping my mother as part of that, which was really crossing the line for me. Yeah. They did a two minute video on me. It was like very well produced, but they'd selectively edited me saying stuff to make it sound like I was like an idiot and stuff like that but i complained to ofcom about that and they were like oh no that that's okay because they're trying to make a point in their story and i thought they just edited a video of me giving a talk that makes me sound like i don't know what i'm talking it was i mean that was quite unpleasant because you kind of think okay someone has clearly edited a video to use it against me surely that's a bad thing ofcom can do something about but then you kind of write your complaint and i got like a huge document back from russia today's lawyer looking at like every tweet i'd ever made that was slightly critical of russia today or russia and i was like bloody hell they're nearly as good as me at looking at people's online profiles <laughs> but paid considerably more than you i suspect yeah unfortunately for me <laughs> at this point the bellingcat do i call it a network a community what 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 how do you describe bellingcat these days I mean, it's kind of evolved over time because up until about two years ago, it was still basically me and about six volunteers and we had a pretty small budget. I mean, when I crowdfunded initially, it was like £60,000 I raised and it's doubled every year since then. So, we're, you know, we're doing well with, when it comes to growth, but we have grown from nothing. So it's still not huge. Now we're a Dutch foundation with basically charity status. We have like a supervisory board. You know, it's, it's a proper organisation now. And how many full-timers have you got? Um, we've got about 20 full-timers now. So that is real scale in a decade. These are serious investigators, researchers, skilled at open intelligence. 
And we also have like a big team of volunteers. Like everyone knows us a lot for the brushless stuff we've done on the Scripples and the Varney, but a lot of that was actually led by one volunteer, yeah. not an employee. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and we've only really had two other employees really working on that a lot with them, but that's still just a small part of the work that they do. So people often say, oh, why do you only write about Russia? We really don't. And it's because we've got one volunteer who's like really yeah. amazingly good at doing investigation. Yeah. So I'm not going to say no to that. It's amazing stories. Well, the Scripple story, I know it, but there are listeners to this podcast who might not. Tell me the Scripple story, because this is extraordinary. So um, when the Scripples were originally poisoned, there wasn't really much we could do with open source. So we kind of just didn't really do anything. And then when it came to the UK authorities releasing the names of the suspects, we started looking into them a bit. Very soon after that, because there were details of the flight, a Russian news agency, an independent news agency, I should say, in Russia, released details of the flight records, including the people on the flight, including the guys, which included their passport numbers, which are only a few numbers apart, which is really, really suspicious. So we then had like their date of birth, their passport number and a few other details. So my colleague Christo Grozev, he's the volunteer I mentioned before, he has an interest in Russian activity across Europe. And he realised that there was a coup a few years earlier, an attempt to coup in Montenegro, where GRU officer had been arrested with two passports, his real ID and fake ID. GRU, Russian... Russian Foreign Intelligence, yeah. yeah. And he realised that on that passport, it had the same date of birth, same place of birth and the same first name. And he thought, well, maybe that's the pattern they've used for these other fake IDs. So he decided to start digging into that. There's a lot of leaked databases from Russia. Basically, Russia is the most open society in the world. It just doesn't mean to be. <laughs> because for years, people have been selling Russian government databases at like, you know, car boot sales put onto a CD. Yeah. And there's now like an online community of people who basically are data brokers, who know people who know people who can get you a file from a government computer of like passport details or someone's phone records or stuff that should not be accessible to the public. But thanks to Russia being Russia, it is. So he, first of all, looked up these old databases and discovered these guys just appeared from nowhere between kind of two years from like 2012 to 2013. They just appeared from nowhere. And then he started looking at people with similar details, like the first name and birthdays. And he found a pretty small list of people. And he looked through that list, found their online profiles, apart from one guy. And then he ordered the passport registration documents for this guy. He had the same photo as the guy in the um, UK information. And it turned out that on his form, it had a stamp from the Russian MOD with a phone number on it, something that said Secret Surface. It was basically obviously a spy and his fake identity. So we then kind of reversed engineered who he could be, figured out his real identity, got his documents, and it turned out that this guy was actually a serving Russian GRU officer who had the Hero of Russia award given him to Vladimir Putin. We had our partners in Russia go to his hometown and find out his grandmother had a photograph of him being given the award by Putin personally. We looked at the other guy. He was also a GRU officer who also had a Hero of Russia award. And then it went on. I'll, I'll leave it there because it's a long story if I keep on telling all the details. Do you ever think, where the hell were MI6? You have identified two Russian secret service operatives who assassinated or allegedly assassinated a refugee couple in Salisbury on UK soil. And you've done it, your organisation. Does it not worry you? Because you ended up having to give evidence to the Dutch police, I think. 
Um, with MH17, we gave it to the Dutch police. With the Skripal case, we have spoken to the UK police. It, Christo has spoken, you know, yeah. the police obviously wanted to know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, I mean, that's led us to talking to like various investigations because we've done other investigations into Russian assassinations, including like the FSB assassination of someone in Berlin, the Berlin bicycle assassination. And there's a court case for that now where one of our numbers is giving evidence. And that has built and built and built because we started with these first two suspects. Then it was discovered there was a third person who travelled around the same time who was also had a passport number that was like 30 numbers different from the two guys and seemed to be a possible another suspect. We looked into him, found his real identity. He was another GRU officer, but we managed to get his phone records. And based off that, we had very detailed information of all his movements because it tracked all the cell phone towers with coordinates that he connected to when he was using his phone. And it's not just phone calls, it's data. So when his WhatsApp is updating, it's actually pinging to the nearest cell phone tower. So we could track him through London, where he would have been very close to the Scripple suspects as they went to um, Salisbury on the day. He also phoned people who worked at a chemical lab. And this chemical lab was supposedly making sports nutrition drinks. But in fact, they were actually staffed by members of the former Novichok program, who he was talking to on the phone before the assassination. We then tracked him to another assassination attempt in 2015 of a Bulgarian arms dealer who was also mysteriously poisoned and identified a team of eight people who'd been working on that case from the same GRU office as the other guy. So we now had more assassination attempts using nerve agents in Europe, plus the nerve agent lab where it was coming from. The people who listen to my podcast are sort of, you know, they're a mix of people who like culture and the creative sector and politics. Some of them will know Bellingcat, but some of them won't. I mean, you're not James Bond. Right. No, I'm just, I've got a laptop and an internet connection. That's all you need. You're a very intelligent, obsessive, I mean that with respect, who's created an organisation that has unlocked a global conspiracy to assassinate. I wouldn't say very intelligent, though, to be fair. I mean, I'm not that special. I'm not like a super genius who's figured out. I mean, I was basically adult spot the difference half the time. It's looking at a video and a satellite image and saying, oh, yeah, that's the same place. But that's the thing. This is so teachable to other people. And this is what we do a lot. We teach it to other organizations. We kind of expand this network. We share how we do this stuff. When we published, for example, on these poisonings, we explained exactly how we went through the process. And this was a bit different because this isn't traditional open source material, even though it's easily accessible, like you can join a Telegram channel and get this stuff from Russian databases. It's still not traditional open source, but because we're transparent about our methods when we do publish, people can actually go and get the data themselves and double check what we're doing. And this is what happened with the, for example, the Navani poisoning, which we investigated. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
the ethics of all of this have been a conversation within the group of people you work with over a decade and you honed it in. I can't remember what in the book you said you've got a mantra or a mission about information, but you're not partisan or you're not party political. You just want to get facts out there. Is that right? Yeah, and it's really always come from my kind of initial reasoning for doing this, because it was really a selfish reason. I wanted to know more about what was happening in the conflict in Libya, and I wanted to win arguments on the internet. <laughs> so it's kind of those two factors came together and formed Bellingcat. I don't want to write something for other people. I want to write stuff that, you know, lets me find out more about the thing I'm interested in. And if other people like that, then that's a bonus. And in a sense, anyone who's working for Ballincat is investigating stuff they're interested in. I don't want to assign people work. I want people to look at stuff they care about and are interested in and can dig into really deeply, but also are aware of their own biases. And they aren't doing it for a partisan reason. I mean, if, for example, MH17 had been shot down by Ukraine, we would have written about that. We'd have done that same level of investigation. But it was Russia. Yeah. And, you know, if someone from Port and Down had actually poisoned the scripples, we'd be writing about that and so on <laughs> and so forth. And also a lot of people say, oh, why do you only write about Russia? We really don't. I mean, right, it's annoying because we write about so many great subjects that I think deserve attention. But part of it is because aside from Russia doing a lot of bad stuff, the whole community has grown around those topics. First it was Syria, then it was MH17, and then Russia started bombing Syria. So we kind of merged those two communities together. I mean, the Syria thing, where the ethics came in, because actually there were so many different groups and players in that, what I would call my old defence days, I'd call theatre. You were very clear that you weren't taking a side on that, that you were literally trying to just get the facts of who's done what to whom. Were you the first to prove beyond doubt that has had used chemical weapons? It depends what you mean by beyond doubt, because there's plenty of people who still <laughs> doubt that. But I mean, it, it's one of the topics I looked into very early on. And I think one of the kind of biggest moments in that early days for me with the Brown Moses blog and looking at chemical weapons was I was really the only person who was watching all the videos from Syria every day, looking at the weapons being used. So I would come across some odd looking weapons and I wouldn't know what they were. And during the August 21st, 2013 sarin attacks, these munitions were used. We call them volcano rockets that were filled with sarin. And they look very DIY. They don't look like a traditional munition. So some people, including the writer Seymour Hirsch, was talking about these being kind of jihadi rockets with sarin from Turkey. But I'd seen these rockets in videos not only posted by opposition groups after being attacked by them in previous incidents, including one that was like two weeks earlier where there was clear like a dog twitching and drawing on the ground right next to it, but from videos from the Syrian government themselves using the same kind of rocket. So that huge amount of information that I was able to share with people following me was then put against what the US government put out, this kind of document saying that, you know, they had a map which was wrong, no videos, even though I had 200 of them, plus, you know, just I had masses of evidence. And I think that gulf between what I could share through the open sources and what the US government was putting out yeah. really alarmed a lot of people who were following my work, including journalists who were closely following Syria. They were like, what the hell is going on? Brown Moser has it on his blog, and we don't even know what his real name is, yet we have the US government giving us this document that is just trash. And... I think the whole debate around that politically was really badly informed. I remember watching the debate in Parliament about it and just, I mean, it honestly looked like MPs were talking about the opinions of their favourite columnists and just debating that. Because Seymour Hurst took a swipe at you, didn't he? I mean, he's obviously like a great stature on the sort of progressive mm. journalist front and he was a hero of yours, but he, he then took a dig at you. Yeah, because um, he published this article in the London Review of Books. It was very long and basically laid out that he had sources who were saying to him that the sarin and rockets used on August 21st were basically provided by Turkey. And based off everything I had, that was complete garbage. And I didn't have sources. I had 
video footage, some of which was coming from the Syrian government side themselves, showing that these rockets belong to the Syrian government. And I wrote an article for The Guardian with someone I know called Dan Casita, who's a chemical weapons expert, explaining why it was garbage. Like, you can't just knock up sarin. It's really, really hard to make. And Seymour Hersh was basically saying you could make it in a bathtub. And it didn't take that well to that at all. He was interviewed by a Turkish newspaper about it, and he really kind of had a go at us in that. It's like, I don't know who these people are. But the things it did for a lot of people is come across like old journalism versus new journalism, but I yeah. don't want to frame Bellingcat against anywhere of investigation. It's a way to complement journalism as a form of investigation. But it does show that there is a sort of stature. I mean, I know some of these great journalists, and they're very fragile when they're the authority of the information or the opinion they try and evidence is challenged. Mm. And that's essentially what happened, wasn't it? You were swatted by a big beast of journalism who didn't want to think that what you were doing was perhaps more authoritative or more informative than he. And that must have been a bit of a lesson, I guess. It was, but it happened again as well with the Karl Sheikun sound attack in 2017, because he did a piece there in Welton, Germany. And it was, again, utter trash. Like, everything he said in it, all the claims he was repeating from these sources were just not true at all there's like really it was really obviously not true if you actually looked at the evidence not even the russians and syrians were saying the things that he was saying he was like saying oh the russians provided a precision guided munition that hit a jihadi hq that had some like cleaning chemicals in it that combined to produce a poison glass gas. and nothing supported that he couldn't even say where this supposed jihadi hq was i was like saying i will look it up in satellite imagery and check if it's been bombed because i can do that i have this axe it's on google earth it's not hard to do but he just couldn't come back with any solid answers i think someone emailed him a question about and he said i've just learned to write what i know and move on which i think for any journalist especially an investigative journalist of that stature is pathetic to be honest with you yeah let's talk about some of the techniques i mean i think where you defeat that kind of journalism that probably is given information rather than examines information you do things in extreme detail so there's a story in the book about where you literally looked at an image and you started sketching out a road map so you could work out where an attack had taken place tell me that story yeah so this was very early on when i was first kind of figuring out what i was actually doing i didn't even have a word for it but we call it geolocation so it's using if you have a video or a photograph and you want to know where it's filmed you can use other reference material things like google street view satellite map imagery so i had this one video somewhere in libya they claimed they'd captured this town brega as the rebels there was no like really obvious features that you would see on satellite imagery but i realized he was walking down all these roads so i drew out all the roads and then held up the piece of paper and rotated it looking at the satellite image of the uh location he supposedly was in and then managed to find the exact intersection he had been walking down and traced his journey back and then kind of looked at the smaller and smaller detail the shape of the buildings visible to confirm where he was actually walking about and that's kind of just like a core skill of any good open source investigator geolocation you say that you're trying to pass on the techniques you've actually almost created a an academic discipline really of open is it open in to up, up in well when we first started doing this as our kind of small community we didn't have our own words so we adopted the term OSINT open source intelligence from the intelligence community but we now like to call it open source online investigation yeah because intelligence in that term is like a package it's like a product you're producing yeah but we can apply what we're doing to so many different fields we have a process we break down as identify verify and amplify where we identify material of interest we verify it using all these geolocation and other processes but then the amplification stage because we have that verified information can be a whole range of different things it can be for example with mh17 with our kind of early blog posts and reports we turned it into a podcast we've worked on documents for court submissions and because this is basically evidence we're dealing with 
this growing interest in the justice and accountability community about how to use this. So we've been working recently with the Global Legal Action Network to develop processes around archiving and investigating incidents, in this case, Saudi airstrikes in Yemen. And we've actually just had a mock trial with a judge from the ICC to test this with real lawyers. Right. And I was one of the witnesses. So wow. It's pretty scary, even though it's not a mock trial, but you have to kind of explain yourself to, you know, defence barristers and stuff like that. Yeah. And did it go well? We think it went really well. I mean, they were pretty tough on us, which is what we want, because we don't want them to go easy, because we have to make sure this process is perfect. Yeah. The idea there is we'll get that feedback and feed it back into the methodology we've developed and then repackage it so we can give it to other organisations to use. Because you kind of assume, oh, surely the ICC and all these other huge bodies know how to use this stuff. But it's so new, we're still discovering how to do it. And what's really unusual about this is it's something that's come from the public. It doesn't come from academia. It comes from people like me who've kind of accidentally stumbled across it and now are figuring out how to turn it into a real thing. I mean, are you at a point where you think this could be built into the curriculum of you know journalism courses or media courses at universities or colleges? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of thinking a lot now about how you know the spread of disinformation is affecting society. And I think we've seen a good example of that on January 6th in Washington, D.C., of how far it can go. We see these communities growing, and for me, it's because there's been a growing distrust in traditional sources of authority. And this could be governments, it could be doctors, it could be the media. So people are looking for alternative sources of authority online. Now, a lot of them join communities like the alternative health community, you know, the anti-war community. And there's an element within those who are kind of more conspiracy focused. And some of those people will get more and more exposed to those ideas and have those ideas reinforced by being part of these communities on social media platforms like Facebook, for example, and also being served information that reinforces that because the algorithm has decided they want to know more about the flat earth. So they're going to get more flat earth videos and stuff recommended to them. Yeah. So you have this gradual process of radicalization, but on a whole range of topics from coronavirus to the earth being flat to chemical weapons in Syria. And it's because there's not an alternative, I feel, fact-based, evidence-based community where people can actually feel they're empowered to do stuff. And I would really like to go into schools, work with students and train them to do open source investigations. I've, I've seen a really great project called the Student View Project, where they've been building pop-up newsrooms in schools for 16 to 18 year olds. And that really empowers young people, but it also teaches them to be critical thinkers. It teaches them to understand the media. And that, for me, is really important. But the challenge is, I mean, we're a small organisation of 20 people and it's a big wide world and there's a whole internet. So I really would like to engage on that level and engage with those kind of students and teach them how to be empowered. If I was still an MP, I would want to try and get an education minister to look at that because there is a huge thing about digital literacy. I mean, I've only finished the book this week. I think every MP in the UK should read your book and more. I was very, very critical of Facebook when they essentially didn't close down the live stream of the massacre in New Zealand in the mosque. And I think I actually said they've got a business model that is based on live streaming massacres. But in the book, you point out that some of the YouTube videos that show some fairly horrific incidents that have been taken down are potentially source information that you could turn into evidence and so you've sort of challenged the contours between free expression and censorship. You've pushed me back a little bit. And why I think this is an interesting debate now is that there's obviously a debate in Parliament on the online palms white paper, which may actually restrict some of the things that people put on some of these big platforms. And I'd be really interested to know what you think about that, Elias. You know, it's not really your field, I guess, public policy, but are you concerned that some of the things you've done 
in the last decade may be curtailed as a result of changes to public policy. And it's always hard to predict because my problem with the people making these decisions is I don't think they understand the internet really at a deep level. <laughs> I get that. They see the surface level problems that they come across with, you know, old Facebook is getting everyone into groups and they're turning into kind of maniacs and certain topics, which is an issue. Old people are getting too much data gathered about them. But really, there's a much, much more fundamental issue that they're not even thinking about. They don't even know it's a problem. It's the fact that really, really deep down, it's a lack of trust in traditional sources of authority, people seeking that online and not being given an alternative way to engage positively with society. And until we can offer that to people, the same problems will keep happening. It's like some people are saying, well, oh, what about if we have real identities online? You have to have your real address or name attached to your identity. That's going to force people off the mainstream platforms into places like Gab and Parler, where they'll be surrounded by the far right and just awful conspiracy theorists. So that won't work. It also means people from vulnerable communities across the world won't be able to use those communities. You know, it's like with Syria, that would mean, you know, half the people in Syria wouldn't have been able to post about the conflict. So, I mean, there's just this myriad of problems where you can't address it at this much higher level without looking at this in-depth societal issue. And we can address that. There is a way to move forward with that. There's a way to make people from a young age more engaged. And it's not just about them having opinions. It's about them being able to do facts-based investigations that they can take evidence to the people who can make a difference and say, here's the evidence. And we can support that as a growing community of, you know, open source investigators. We connected to courts, we connected to policymakers, we connected to news agencies, NGOs all across the world. And if you can connect local communities into that network, getting them looking at local issues, yeah. they can be really empowered. But someone has to you know, pay for it, basically. Someone has to commit to it. And that's the difficult part. But as a state, I mean, what you're describing is a paradigm shift in education policy, for example, where, you know, I can see my teenage kids getting something called a digital literacy GCSE. It's that quantum, isn't it? It's not just an hour's lesson about where you find your facts on the internet. It's actually a whole approach to information and critical faculties and how you sift through opinions and all those kind of battles. That's a sort of description of where we need to be, I think, you're talking about. I think as well, when we're talking about the digital and online, we need to stop thinking about it as something that's separate from society. It is society nowadays, especially with young people. That's what they're part of. We have an opportunity here to create really engaged young people. I don't want to say that in a pathy kind of way, but actually work with them in practical terms, show them how to do these investigations, explain to them that they aren't actually disempowered. A 16-year-old has exactly the same information I would have access to, and look what I've been able to do with that information. Yeah. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to geolocate a video or send a freedom of information request or collect data in a systemized fashion on whether or not the bins are being collected on time. That you can collect that data, document it, analyze it, share it with people who can actually make a difference. And maybe policymakers, rather than having your opinion about what's wrong in the world, actually want hard facts and solid data. I'm sure some don't, but there may be people at a local level who do. And why don't we actually try and do that rather than banning people from using fake names on Facebook or saying that we can't have details about us gathered online because somehow that will directly result in us becoming maniacs when really the issue is much, much deeper. That's not to say those aren't issues, but if we think that's the solution, just dealing with that top end stuff, then we're screwed. Oh, God, you know, talking to you, it's one of the few occasions where I regret not being an MP, right? I've literally had about less than an hour of regret since I stood down a year ago. But I mean, there's so much that could be done with your agenda. Tell me a little bit more now. What's Bellingcat up to now and where are you going to be in 10 years time? Gosh, well, um, 
I mean, we're continuing finding more Russian assassinations, which is a pretty grim uh, line of inquiry. I mean, we found out who was behind the Navalny poisoning. That was an FSB team. Were you directly talking to Navalny or his people, or you were doing your own investigation? So Christo Grozov, he was the main point of contact there because he had done these other Russian assassination investigations and found the nerve agent lab. So when Navalny was poisoned, he just looked up the phone records of the scientists at the nerve agent lab and they were talking to an FSB team. He got all their travel records and details and they had followed Navalny 40 times, including the time he was poisoned. And this was since 2017, he was followed 40 times by this team. So we figured out that, yeah, this must be the team. Navalny then tricked one of the team into giving a 50-minute confession on the phone, which was <laughs> quite a moment for us, I will say. Yeah. Yeah. And then Christo's kept digging into this. He's discovered, we've published so far about three mysterious deaths just as these people were being followed by the FSB team, including two activists from the Caucasus and a member of the official opposition in Russia, the kind of anti-corruption official opposition. A major opposition figure, Vladimir Karamurza, who's poisoned twice, fell into a coma and went to America. And he was responsible for the Magnitsky Act in America and pushing it there and an ally of Boris Nemstov. We have another four killings we're looking into or attempted killings that we are certain are connected to this team. And we're just getting started there. Um, so we're doing that, but we're also looking more into a range of topics now. We've been doing a lot recently on wildlife conservation. That's a really interesting area because it's a fresh area for open source investigation. So any area where it's new, people are unprepared for it. So they always make more mistakes than the people who are prepared for it, like the Russians. Um, so we're moving into those areas. We're, I'm actually um, putting together a production company for Cat, and we're hoping to turn all this Russia stuff we've done on the poisonings into a documentary series. We really want to do one on Syrian chemical weapon use as well, because... You know, most people can name maybe two or three chemical attacks in Syria, and the real number is closer to 400. And we want to tell the story of that, why policymakers didn't take action. You know, every kind of aspect of it, we've got people we can talk to who are victims of the attacks and maybe even some of the perpetrators and really, you know, tell the full story of what happened there. And take kind of what we've done with Bellingcat, the analysis, the evidence-based work. And, you know, I talk about that amplification step again. It's another form of amplification, bringing it to a new audience, both for the story of what it tells us, but also showing them that this is something that you can do from the comfort of your own home. And where do you think you'll be in a decade? Carter, um, hopefully alive with all this <laughs> rush stuff. I mean, you laugh, you um, laugh about it. Do you ever worry God. about that? I mean, you, oh God, I've had to stop eating food in hotels. I'm so <laughs> paranoid about it. The thing I hate now, I used to love going to a hotel where they put like a little cake or something nice out for you. And now I have to flush it down the toilet because I just think I've no idea. Like, it sounds paranoid, but then Navalny was poisoned in his hotel room and they put it in his pants. So I don't know what my situation with my pants is now when I'm traveling. I'm going to have to carry them around in my laptop bag to make sure they don't get poisoned. You'd never travel to Russia, though, would you? Oh, God, no. I mean, it's um, I, I've kind of been always glad there's been coronavirus, so they can't really travel here that easily either. And anyone on the street is immediately suspicious, be they Russian or not. I mean, some people listening to this won't know whether to take that seriously. But I know what you go through. You know, in the phone hacking thing, when I identified the private investigator who was a former metropolitan police officer trained in covert surveillance who'd been commissioned to follow me by the fake sheikh at the news of the world and i'd got these internal emails it took years for me not to memorize the number plates of cars outside the house that i stayed in mm. you end up becoming paranoid you don't know what people are doing covertly that must be a low level pressure for you well what really worries me is you know we've published articles now showing seven assassinations using nerve agents in Europe and in Russia. We've revealed the presence of a secret Russian nerve agent program in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. We're involved with a case of the Berlin bicycle killing, which is now in court in Germany. And my concern is, 
if we do all this, if we make this all public and the governments of the world do nothing but expel some more diplomats, then it's basically saying to Russia, it's okay, you can do that. Because that's factored in as a price for Russia. If Russia doesn't pay a price for assassinating people, then that's a direct risk to myself and my colleagues at Bellingcat, because then that you know means that that will keep happening to people across the world and it could be us one day. And when you say Russia, what you mean is... Putin's Russia, don't you? You know, the Putin regime. Yeah. I always like to be very clear that, you know, when I'm saying Russia, I mean the government of Russia. I mean, I want the people of Russia to have a free democracy with standard lifestyles and stuff like that. But it's not going to happen when you've got Putin spending a billion dollars on a giant palace on the coast and murdering all the opposition leaders with nerve agents. Navalny revealed this when he went back to be arrested in Russia, right? Yeah. So um, we knew he was going back to Russia. And just after he got back, he was arrested. And then the next day, his organization published a video that revealed the presence of this massive palace Putin had been building and remodelling at a cost about a billion dollars, from what I understand. And they managed to fly a drone over it. They got plans for the building. The plans had details of all the furniture that was going to be there. So they reconstructed what it would be with 3D imagery. And, you know, kind of went from there. And it got like over 100 million views on YouTube. It was a huge story in Russia, but still, you know. And with Bellingcat, like we've done Russia or Putin's Russia. Where else are you looking? You've done Syria, Libya, Russia. Are there any other powerful states that you're picking a fight with or lifting the lid on? I mean, we've been doing Saudi airstrikes in Yemen that killed civilians. And we've actually used that in an attempt to challenge arms experts from the UK to Saudi Arabia. I mean, we've collected information about police violence against protesters around the Black Lives Matter movement targeting journalists as well and that's being used to challenge non-lethal weapon exports from the uk actually we're doing a lot to another uk so maybe uh, careful at the moment you're doing a lot in the uk well challenging arms exports oh, so probably right. the arms industry will come after yeah. me next but i mean we all look anywhere i mean if there's something worth investigating if especially if there's a justice and accountability issue or you know some way we can actually make a positive change then we're going to go after that whenever possible look i find myself just chuckling away at just the sheer scale of the things you've revealed, Delia. And you've essentially done it from your home in Leicestershire. You know, you've built a global organisation in a decade, almost by accident, as you describe, although I think you do yourself down a little bit when you say that. I just want to say it's been a genuine pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for the early days of the phone hacking scandal. If ever you find the other half of that PGP key, email me back and we'll have a look at it again. And good luck in the future. And if there is anything I can do to help, please recruit me and I'm going to tell everyone they should read your book because it's a remarkable story. That's great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks, mate. So that was Elliot Higgins, a humble, self-effacing geek who has built a team of citizen journalists that have rocked global politics. At some parts of our conversation, I was astonished about how matter-of-factly he listed his team's discoveries. Were he a professional journalist, he would have won a Pulitzer Prize for his work. Yet he was cool as a cucumber as he described being condemned by powerful institutions like the Kremlin. He's the living proof that the disruptive application of curated data is changing our world forever. And no one, no matter how powerful, is going to change that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did... Do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullin. This episode was edited by Nick at Podmonkey. The music is by Tom Gray. Hold up. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 